Uh, we're picking up this series that we're going through at the moment, which is titled Ascend. And uh, Ephesians chapter 4 is where I'd love for you to open your Bibles now. If you've got a Bible on you, Ephesians chapter 4, the words will be on screen a bit later to help you anyway. Now, as we've been on this journey, we're seeing three forms of ongoing upward motion in play as in the way that we live out our Christian lives. And the word ascend works across all three of these. Now, the first three chapters, as I've kept saying, uh, brings us into the realm of looking up. And uh, chapter four is taking us into this mindset of stepping up. And uh, stepping up is, built, is framed around this phrase, live a life that is worthy of the calling that we have in Christ. All right, we have a status that is in Christ and we're called to live a life that is worthy of that calling. And then underpinning this, then Paul goes, all right, a worthy life has character traits. We've got humility, gentleness, patience, enduring love. We've fleshed those out in previous messages. We don't need to go over it too much now. Then on top of all this, we go into the pursuit of something really noble called unity. Unity is, is, is the, this healthy expression of what the church needs to be, uh, this uh, singleness of mind, singleness of cause, singleness of drive together. And, and Paul then goes, I'm going to give you seven ways that you can engage with the concept of unity uh, in this particular setting. And we've seen these fleshed out as well. Um, the one thing I love about this is that this sort of unity brings us all into a place where we are one in Christ. That's a much more noble thing than having a unified vision statement. And you know, there's been seasons in the church where everybody has looked the same, dressed the same. You know, in some churches, every fella's had tight jeans and a flannelette shirt on the worship team. And, you know, or, or everybody looked like Darlene Check for a while there. Uh, we had all these times where we've been unified and, and, and done in a very superficial level. But this gets right under the surface of everything and actually gets right down to who we are. This is unity in, the, in a powerful way, and it is distinctly Trinitarian. All right, we don't have unity without the Trinity involved. I love that. Out of that, though, God makes us one, and then in His grace, He releases us into this place of diversity. Into unity, you know, sometimes when we get it, sometimes when it's conformity, we go, What about me? But unity says, I am part of something. And now I'm being released into something given by grace. And these things, uh, these are very five, five very tangible expressions of stepping up in a believer's life. This is where it's at for Christian expression. And uh, these are known in, in theological circles as ascension gifts, uh, based on them being gifts given in grace by Christ, who has ascended, who is ruling over all and is head of the church. And uh, so uh, we're going to read this passage out one more time together. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Now, we're looking at these five gifts in uh, reverse order. Um, if, I'm in, if I was in other denominational settings, I might start at the beginning, but 12 years of Baptist ministry leads me to start this way. The, the last two, uh, the, the teacher and what we'll look at today, uh, these are the most familiar in our circles. Uh, the middle one, 
kind of there. Um, and the first two have largely been dismissed over the years. Uh, and I think that's been to the detriment of the church. Uh, so it, it'll be exciting to go over that. The timing of our liturgical calendar at this time will make this whole process quite poetic, I think. Uh, uh, bearing in mind, Thursday was the Ascension Day. Uh, in our liturgical calendar. So we've got ascension giftings happening right now as we discuss the ascension. So it's, it's right. Next Sunday is Pentecost. And uh, that's, that's a pretty cool one, particularly when we talk about the gift that will be spoken of there. Last week, we looked at the gift of the teacher. And um, we saw last week that all of us walk in a state of perpetual discipleship. We are lifelong learners we are lifelong apprentices. Uh, anything less than that, any mindset less than that, is the heresy of arrival. It's uh, triumphalism to think ourselves as fully done, fully complete, fully mature now, uh, because that can, uh, that's what we anticipate for eternity, that full completeness. We're still growing. We're still learning. We've still got our L-plates on, even as we live through this life. We're always learning stuff. Uh, the Great Commission calls us to make other disciples and teach them. Uh, this starts the moment they get into that first chair we spoke, spoke about last, last year. We talked about the four chairs of discipleship, stepping out into the seeker space. You are already teaching when people begin to engage with your faith in that sort of way. The words of Christ in Matthew 28 call us to find willing learners, make disciples, find willing learners to instruct them, teach them and lead them into kingdom community through baptism. Uh, teaching and receiving instruction is a key element of our faith. And the scriptures, as we saw last week, call all to a teaching role. We all need to be able to impart something to somebody else. Uh, Hebrews 5 anticipates a time where we all get to a point of teaching somebody else. It was a lament there. You ought to be teaching others by now. And that is our stance. We ought to be teaching others at some point. We also saw, though, last week that there is an, the apparent key position in the church, which we would call a teacher. Uh, this role in and of itself is the function of explaining and passing on Christian tradition and doctrine. In Paul's thinking at the time, it was making plain the things taught from the Old Testament, the teaching of Christ, apostolic doctrine, stuff like that. It is the role where deep and searching interaction with Scripture occurs in order for doctrine to be preserved. Uh, it's the role that reflects deeply on how doctrine informs Christian living in the culture it finds itself in. This key position role is presented also as a somewhat ominous one as well. James 3.1 tells us this. We will remember this last week. Not many of you should become teachers uh, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. That's an ominous warning. You know, despite all of us playing a role in teaching others, taking that massive step of being a key position teacher in the church comes with warnings, checks and balances. All right, so when we get into the teaching ministry gift, we don't do this lightly. All right, to get up there and go, I am a teacher, you better know your stuff. All right, because we will be judged strictly, and we are told that in Scripture about that. The challenges last week were to assess our own level of maturity and ability to teach somebody else. Uh, and, to, and if we found ourselves wanting in any way, then seek accountable instruction. Go to another person who might be ahead of you in one way or another and go, listen, I need some instruction in this. Can you help me? And don't be afraid to ask that. We are all learning. All right? What you don't know now is fine. Somebody else won't know something else. All right? You'll have something to impart. You'll have something to learn. We're all in that space. So seek accountable instruction in the things you don't know and what we need to grow in. But also, if you found yourself to be ready, 
then you really should have an apprentice or three. So uh, make sure we've got people there. One thing I didn't do last week is there are plenty of other secular expressions where the teacher role has, has prominence and pride of place. Uh, I did try to, uh, with the recording, I'm limited on how to do things, but uh, you know, I talked about apologists and other things like that, but I've been reflecting on that through the week, school teachers. You know, some school teachers, you know, look, when I was in school, I found I thought a few were there to punch their card, but there were some who really imparted amazing stuff. And really, like some of, like I learned how to write by emulating my year seven science teacher's writing because I was pretty bad at it. Um, I learned how to teach others. You know, a, a massive, mind blowing key principle of learning was taught to me by my year nine maths teacher. Uh, so there's been, you know, so people who teach, you know, some people do it because it's a job, some people do it because it's their passion and their clear gift, and, and I, they know they're put on a planet to do that very thing. That's the majority of teachers anyway. And they go, I know what I'm here for. I'm here to instruct other people. I believe the ascension gift crosses over. And that there is a secular, that, that Christians doing that role in the world around us actually brings something God-breathed into all settings they find themselves. It's not just, you know, many people in our church have identified that we have gifts outside of the church. And I'm, I'm looking for ways in this to, even in this ascension gift, we often think of this as church offices. But I really want to go out of my way to affirm these things that we're doing outside of the walls of the church as well, because that's where the church is its most effective and active. We need to be doing that, all right? When we gather here, we celebrate who we are. Out there, we be who we are. And our gifts need to follow us out into that space. So I'm big on that. Today, we're going to speak into the role of the pastor. And I am coming from the angle that it is distinct from the teacher. All right, they're, they're, I, I've really come to that conclusion here. We've seen Jesus be all over the teaching role. The hands and feet of Christ continue to be present in the church with the gift of the teacher and the presence of teaching. And this can, of course, be said about the role of the pastor as well. The very meaning of pastor here is someone who cares for or tends flocks. It's better translates as a shepherd. And Jesus had a strong idea on what that entailed. But before I get into Jesus' take on a few things, I'm going to backpedal. I need to set some ground here. Um, and I want us to go to Ezekiel chapter 34 for a moment. If you've got a Bible, we've got some significant passage here. The Ezekiel 34 verse 1 to 5. The word of the Lord came to me, the Son of Man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, woe to you shepherds of Israel who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were, they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. This is a statement, obviously, against the leadership of Israel at this time. And uh, it's, uh, but then we see this thing here where he's actually about to say, God says he's about to say he's going to take those roles on himself. Uh, the shepherds, the priesthood of God's people might have failed in their task, but we read that God will ultimately do it himself. 
Um, this time is going to be comforting and ominous. Um, just verse 17 to 24. It says this, As for you, my flock, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I will judge between one sheep and another and between rams and goats. Is it not good enough for you to feed on the good pasture? Must you also trample the rest of your pasture with your feet? Is it not enough for you to drink clear water? Must you also muddy the rest with your feet? Must my flock feed on what you have trampled and drink what you have muddied with your feet? Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says to them. See, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. Because you shove with flank and shoulder, butting all the weak sheep with your horns until you have driven them away, I will save my flock and they will no longer be plundered. I will judge between one sheep and another. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Hopefully some of those traits sound familiar. Jesus came and proclaimed himself as the good shepherd in the face of another generation of failed shepherds. We see this in John chapter 10. As the good shepherd, we, he, he describes himself as the one who approaches in an upfront way. You know he's safe because he's coming in the gate, not over the fence. He has a voice that is known to the sheep. He's deeply invested in the flock. He's not a mere hireling who will run from the first sign of danger. He'll stick around. He'll lay his life down for them. He's the shepherd, the Davidic servant, who God promised from generations back. And this shepherd will also be the judge of the flock's dealings with each other. If Jesus is what was promised in Ezekiel, then he's not just judging and replacing the shepherds. He's judging sheep too. The fat versus the lean, the ones who eat and drink, who are blessed, but who are also a blessing or not. They either leave drink and food for others or they don't. Matthew 25 tells us that the shepherd will return as a king and he'll separate sheep from goats based on this criteria. You know, I was hungry, you fed me, I was thirsty, you gave me a drink, I was a stranger, you were hospitable to me. I needed clothes, you gave them. I was sick, you looked after me. When I was in prison, you came and visited. See, Jesus not only holds the flock accountable for their care to each other, he also takes his own place among the recipients. From there, he will shepherd the flock with justice. So we see this picture of Jesus coming to judge the poor shepherds, the ones who are supposed to be pastors over the nation. And he's also going to hold the sheep, the rest of the flock, accountable for their care for each other. We then fast forward to John 21, and Jesus, Jesus has this discourse with the Apostle Peter. We hopefully know that story. Jesus asks three times if Peter loves him. Peter says, absolutely, sort of. If you study the Greek linguistics, it's actually kind of like that. It's a very fun exercise. But after each of Peter's replies, Jesus responds with a phrase, feed my lambs or tend my flock. I would argue that Peter's primary gifting was not to be a pastor in the strictest interpretation of things. The apostolic gift sits separate to that. 
but care for the flock of Christ was to be part and parcel of what discipleship was. And now we have a case study of how this plays out in the region of Ephesus. This particular church is easily the most documented church in the New Testament. And this starts in Acts chapter 19. Uh, When Paul's time is done there, he has one final time to address the Ephesian elders. Paul's address is this, keep watch over yourselves and the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you, night and day, with tears. The role of oversight of the church involves pastoral shepherding very similar to that which Jesus himself described. It's a deeply invested style which protects mainly from falsehood that would try to rise up. This idea carries on. He starts, he, he talks to the Ephesian elders in that particular passage, look after the flock. And then he goes on. The, the next bit of documentation we see of this is, is Ephesians when, when Paul describes that this is pastoral role in play. And then a little bit after that, we see uh, the next letter that is written to an apostolic leader over the region. And um, he's leading the house church network of Ephesus. And uh, we see this. This is 1 Timothy 3. Timothy is the bishop of Ephesus at this time. And, uh, and uh, Paul writes there about Timothy's job description of appointing overseers, elders, uh, pastors over the, the, the flock of the, na- of the neighborhood. Uh, it says there that as we consider who to appoint as, and elect as elders, that there are to be clearly pastoral traits on display. Um, you know, uh, in fact, we have to do that in deacons too, but it says to be, the elders need to be able to teach. Good talk doctrine is an element of protection for the flock. It's a key element of that. Um, they need to have a gentle disposition. They need to be hospitable. They need to be men and women of peace. They need to be respected for their conduct. They need to have some integrity about them. They can keep appropriate confidentiality. They can be generally trusted. They can be viewed as just and fair. These are all things that draw people in close to each other where real pastoral work gets done. Having those traits on display in an elder brings people to them and people will, will, be, will feel protected by an elder who conducts himself in that sort of way. So we have all this Jesus the good shepherd. We have God's expectation of shepherding going on. We have, we have Jesus fulfilling what needed to happen through the priesthood. We have the church in action uh, with Ephesus being a key expression of what the pastoral gift looks like. Paul is one of the, the only writers to actually use that word in his description of church uh, governance and leadership. And in all of this, I see a template for the way the ascension gift of the shepherd, the pastor, plays out. There are those clearly apportioned more to be shepherds among God's flock, people who are anointed in grace to be able to carry that load and to take a key position in this. Uh, Overseers, elders in the church, um, people uh, who are leading, uh, you know, in, in Timothy's day, that was akin to a house church leader because of the network of churches and how they met. But people who are taking clear oversight, shepherding roles in the life of the church, however that plays out. 
while the teaching gift is on, on its own is very much a down-to-business sort of thing that interacts with Scripture and doctrine and culture, it, it, it informs other gifts. The pastoral gift actually teaches but has, but has other more distinct strings to their bow at the same time. They need to be able to teach, but they also have other key traits about them. In the church, the pastor is the one that builds the culture of love and care for others. They're the ones fostering deep relationships in the kingdom community. They promote discipleship in a way that is not merely infusing doctrine like a teacher does, but is more holistic and integrating of faith and life and maturity. They are protectors of the church in doctrine. And they are the ones with the call to lay their lives down for the church in the way Jesus does. And they hold the flock accountable for their part in pastoring each other, in caring for each other. The pastoral gift is certainly present in church leadership. And in our eldership team, I am surrounded by clearly gifted pastors in our church eldership. And I have a couple of, I've got three of those in the building right now. The people to my side here also, who are not official elders, are deeply pastoral towards their communities. The Congolese and the Korean communities, I recognize the pastoral gift that is present at a, at a very apportioned more level in the room today, as well as out in our audience today. I tend to be a teacher and a little more of something yet to be explored. But the eldership as a whole is a very much a, a very pastoral unit in our midst at the moment. But these are not the only pastors in our midst. Again, like last week, uh, I'm going to encourage you now, look around your viewing parties, look around your homes right now, and I assure you that you will find it there too. There is pastoral gifts all around the environments that you're in right now. Take a look around. Take a look around, you guys. <laughs> house to house, we will find them. Because Jesus calls the whole of his people to be able to do this pastoral work in some way or another. So we're going to reflect on this together real briefly like we did last week. I've got two questions I wanted to like to ask you today. Two key things that will help us understand, sort of consider our work in doing pastoral uh, ministry. First, do our rhythms of Christian living include an awareness of our own pastoral responsibility? Do our rhythms of Christian living include an awareness of our own pastoral responsibility? In other words, when you are devotionally considering your life, are you praying off your checklist of things to pray for and it all pertains to yourself? Or is there a pastoral element that is infused, that is, um, that is uh, fed into the things that you're doing? Is your devotional life as much for others as it is for yourself? Uh, is your element of care and concern, um, does it extend beyond just your house unit, your family? Is there other ex, um, avenues where pastoral care, where uh, shepherding, where, where concern for the flock is extended beyond just yourself and just to ourselves? To say, I'm not a pastor, is not an excuse to not be pastoral. This is something I have to preach to myself, friends, as well, because I know this to be true in my life. I, you know, a lot of people say, oh, yeah, you're pretty pastoral, but not always. 
not always, uh, you know, uh, I need to make time, I need to take my pastoral place in the flock, like all of you guys as well. It's something I need to be in that place. I'm not all that good at a hospital bedside. I'm not good at some of those, you know, very, uh, you know, close-knit places. I'm not all that comfortable with that side of things. But there's a pastoral side of me that will still fight to defend the church of Jesus Christ. Um, I will protect the church from doctrinal wolves out of a pastoral heart. Uh, I will promote love and maturity and community. You've heard me do that a million times. I will stand for justice. I will stand against poor conduct in church leadership. I will see Jesus in the flock as much as he is over the flock. That's a good perspective to have because Jesus actually equates care to the least of these with care towards himself. And he is also our chief overseer. That's a dual thing to look at there. It's crazy. Um, And I also accept and I know that Jesus, my shepherd, will return as a king and will be my judge in the end. My care for Jesus' flock is going to be held to account, and so will yours. Whether I hold an ascension gift of a pastor or not, Jesus is going to eyeball me and go, how did you care for others? And I know that to be true for all believers. You might say, Cam, I'm not a pastor, and I might affirm that. But I'm hoping that you'll all join me in this resolution, that you will say this, despite that, I see my pastoral responsibility in all of this as a member of Christ's flock. And I will stand up for those things too. Let's all take our place. If this is our commitment together, then the church and its future is in very good hands. Yours. I would also refer to my question about apprentices last week. Just as we're called to teach others, we're also called to pastor others as well. That's A very pastoral element is involved in making disciples, in training up other people. You need to be pastoral to do that. It needs to be a string to all of our bows, friends. But what about those who are specifically gifted for this ministry? What if you go and can I identify? I see what I see what's happening here. I see what the Spirit has done. I see what the grace of God is doing in my life, and I see what I'm being equipped for here. What will you do if the Spirit is nudging you about your gift right now? Can I suggest you pursue it? Some are being nudged or nominated from eldership from time to time. If this tap on the shoulder happens to you, please don't be so quick to dismiss that. Our church constitution and process ensures that that tap on your shoulder has been carefully considered before it's given. Last week, I spoke about house church leadership to the teachers. I noted some might be reluctant because they rightly consider themselves to not be all that pastoral. You know, yeah, I can teach scripture, but I'm not a pastoral person. Fine. Would you reconsider if a house church leadership structure put a number of these gifts together to make it work? Be the teacher. But also, take a pastor alongside you to make it work. If you're a pastor, you, you, you need to be able to teach in a setting like that. But the addition of a dedicated teacher might make for a really good team. If you're a teacher and you're leading, perhaps your assistant leader needs to be a person suitably gifted in a pastoral sense. 
if you're trying to work out why is this not connecting or my ministry not sort of working out, maybe some dynamics of collaboration need to be in play for that. I'm saying that neither gift needs to cancel themselves out here. And a series of gifts put together in one place can make the culture of a house church setting or any other ministry really strong. Adding evangelists, prophets, and even apostles to that mix can actually make all those groups really exciting. There are churches all over the world who are seeking to put all five of the ascension gifts into their house church structures and into their ministry structures because they believe that achieves the fullness of Christ in, you know, and the fullness of the ministry of Christ in those different uh, smaller settings. And uh, maybe that's something to prayerfully consider. It's also pretty easy to see the ascension gift of pastoral ministry play out in the wider community too. Our gifts build people up and that works outside the four walls of the church. I tried to point that out last week. I've done it again this week. So I would say lean into your pastoral role in the community. If you have a, some of you, it'll be more apparent to you. If you've got to work on social work or counselling or healthcare or human resource work, you might work at a, pay, at a timber mill, but you're in human resources. That's a pastoral task. Or community de development. Maybe you're in the council or something like that. Um, in, in school or city welfare settings, chaplaincy or otherwise. Or even things like working in the police force. These all reflect a pastoral skill set. Lean into it. You might not be defending doctrine out there, but you are on the front line in caring for others. When the judgment day comes, I believe you're going to be pretty surprised at where Jesus was in the things done out there as much as in here. So let us all take our pastoral place within the flock of Christ. Understanding that he is over the flock, he is in the flock, and that he identifies personally with the least of these that are found there. If we're called to a more of an overseer role, and we'll get the band up for now to just wind this up, let's get ready for now for what that might look for in practice. Like I said earlier, this could be a training ground for us at the moment. Let's get ready for what God is actually preparing us for. So when we can gather, when we can do things on a larger scale, we can all take our place up in that. The world is going to need pastors more and more as we navigate life in the wake of the pandemic. We need to be ready for when that call comes. Let's stop. Let's pray.